Welcome to Ausfilm Creatives, a podcast about Australian creatives working behind the camera. My name is Peter Sylvester and I'm your host. Welcome back, listeners. Today we have Nick McCullum, who is a production designer working mostly in Australia, and he's uh, has a quite a long career working in it on television shows, TV series, and uh, yeah, he's got some great credits on on his CV, like Bait, 3D, Sanctum, working with James Cameron, and more recently working with Russell Mulcahy on In Like Flynn, which we'll talk about. So this podcast was recorded at a cafe, so it's a little bit noisy, but it'll give you a more natural feeling as we've had that nice discussion face-to-face. So enjoy. Welcome to Ausfilm Creatives, Nick. Thank you, Peter. Great to be here. So how did you actually get in, get into it? Well, production design took a, a while to get into, but I grew up in film business, in the theatre. My parents were actors, and uh, I uh, sort of grew up in that world. I made films at school and at age of 11 I was actually in a film directed by Tim Burstall so yeah um, it was kind of in the in the genes it was in my environment and when I left school I went to the UK and started working in theatre I worked at Chichester Festival Theatre in Sussex for six months I was assistant stage manager and that was directly after school and as a result of that, I got a scholarship to go to Lambda, which is a London Academy for Music and Dramatic Art. And I did a theatre technicians course there for, um, they do four terms. Um, the fourth term, they adjust you out to a sort of a repertory theatre. And as I'd already done theatre uh, and come to the conclusion that really theatre's for actors and not quite for behind, behind the scenes theatres and uh, actors and directors, um, so I asked whether I could um, do some television and so they arranged for my final term to be uh, working with the BBC. So I worked there for uh, four months in a place called Staff Training and that worked um, at White City um, adjacent to the BBC and so they would um, train up internal staff. So if you were an editor in Bristol, you'd come down to a three-week directing course and and then go back and then perhaps, you know, become a director back at Bristol. And um, yeah, I did that for four months. And by that stage, I'd spent three years in the UK, with fabulous three years in the 70s. Um, so there was a lot of, you know, things going on. There was the punk movement and there was great summers and, you know, um, I enjoyed it, but my time in England had come to an end. So I returned to Australia and started as a standby props. Wow. And so what interested you in that aspect, like from doing the theatre, how did you sort of, I guess, translate that to wanting to, okay, I definitely want to be about production designing or art directing and that kind of thing? Well, I gravitated towards that because, you know, um, I clearly wasn't going to be an actor and uh, I didn't think that I had the the skills to, uh, you know, go through actors' motivations and the art department, you know, the set building, we built sets, we designed the sets. It seemed to be a much more creative outlet. I mean, there's obviously lighting design and sound design, but uh, no, I gravitated to the the bigger aspect of um, sets. And so when I came back to Australia, having had that sort of, uh, experience in the UK, the only way that it could really translate into 
getting a job in Australia was in an art department and as a standby props, I couldn't walk in and be a designer or be an art director. So um, yeah, I worked in Malaysia for eight months on a film or TV series called um, uh, Bailey's Bird. And that got me started. Wow. And with um, what, what are some of the things you picked up during that process that really kind of took you to the next level to become more focused towards the, your goal, I guess? Or did you have that goal already in mind? No, look, it was a very organic process. I mean, at that, that sort of age, you're sort of still working out exactly clearly what your goals are. But I knew that um, with my background and what I'd already achieved by the time I was 20, um, you know, there was a future for me uh, in the film industry working in an art department. And so working as a standby props, clearly it was an episodic television series. So there was a great deal to, we dealt with the same characters, but there was a great deal to be achieved episode by episode, different stories to tell. And um, working with, uh, you know, in a foreign country that also had its, uh, you know, challenges. And so I came away from that feeling, you know, quite confident that, um, you know, four years out of school, I had some pretty good grounding. And then I kind of turned my back on it and went to uh, university for a year down at Deakin. Uh, thought I'd do journalism and media studies and psychology and usual suspects. Yeah, yeah. Is that just because you still were finding your feet? Well, yeah, I guess I just thought, that, you know, I'd worked my tail off since leaving school and I thought you know a bit of a break it wasn't quite dropping out and it wasn't quite working and you know, my father said to me he always wished that he went to university and was very proud of me but it only lasted 12 months because <laughs> essentially I was four years into life and all of my fellow students were just out of school and so the, the, the masters or the teach, lecturers I think they called them you know, they weren't really into dealing with somebody that was challenging them about life. They just wanted to sort of have basically things thrown back to them parrot fashion and mark it off and don't think very much. So I left and came back to, well, that was at Geelong and I came back to Sydney and uh, shopped around again. Those days you had to write letters and you sort of made a little resume of your own and make a phone call to see if the people got letters. And uh, landed a job as another standby props on a Grundy production called Bellamy, and that must have been in about 1981. Wow. Well, it's, you know, that's the best way to get the experience up from the ground, you know, having that, because especially people starting now, they don't have the chance to spend time in the, in the environment to really get the hang of whatever role they want to do. Look, I have to say it was a very blessed time because there was an enormous amount of work. I mean, Bellamy was eight months' work and then uh, it was the 10BA days. And once you've sort of made a, a name for yourself, I knew in February what I was doing in October. And that would be like three films in a row because, you know, the people who were sort of specialists in their field and I became one of those as a standby props guy, there was about two or three others of us that sort of, you know, competed, I guess, against each other, but there was gainful, you know, work. And so um, I was really able to work with a number of directors, number of cameramen, lots of locations, different circumstances, you know, period films, contemporary films, fantasy films. 
And that was the buzz. That was fabulous. Mm. And um, oh, yeah. went on for, you know, a number of years. Yeah. It's great training ground on that. And, and that's the thing, like, for you as a production designer um, now, but back then, uh, did you try find a certain way that you wanted to eventually envision scenes? Like when you were props, did you like look at a scene and go, oh, maybe I would do it this way? Not necessarily better, but you know, like, would you would you do that or, or was that? Oh, no, absolutely. In fact, there was a, a situation where um, the house that I lived in had a sort of a country aspect and it was chosen to be a location. And the director said, oh, I really like to use your home as a as a uh, as a location for this scene i said well only on the proviso that i direct that scene and um everyone agreed um and i did it in one shot and we wrapped early and brought out the beers it was great so yeah and in between jobs i would write i'd like to write and so i sort of just for myself and that's developed over the period of time as well mm. so it was just a really creative time yeah wow yeah, it sounds like golden age was there so something that really helped out did you have a mentor or something at the start to get you going in, in the industry or was it just word of mouth kind of well i think people sort of saw qualities in in people and i, I can remember um i was stand by props on a film called rebel directed by Michael Jenkins. Peter James was the DP. Uh, set in World War II. It was a musical. It was based on a play called no, Names No Pack Drills. And um, the designer was a guy called Brian Thompson, who was, you know, two to force. This man was an extraordinary designer. And, you know, he was... Um, he turned... It was the first time I actually saw that a production designer could have a real say in what the end result of the film would look like. I mean, up until then, it had been very rudimentary. There'd been, you know, sort of, it had a very domestic kind of feel about it. I mean, Razorback, I was second unit, um, standby props on that. And of course that was, you know, highly uh, sort of stylized. Mm. Russell's vision and working yeah. again with Dean Semler. I mean, that was just oh. a blast. But again, you know, you're defined by the outback and what what Broken Hill, the location that we used, sort of threw threw up against us. So I mean that was a really good experience. But what Brian Thompson showed me is that you can lift something and turn it into a world that nobody could ever have imagined. And he bought, of course, this sort of pink and red rhinestone camouflage uh, to the extent that Matt Dillon, who was uh, you know he'd just come off Rumblefish, I think, and um, came down. He said, "What's all this?" red and pink camouflage i've come down here to do a war film anyway he got into the swing of things and um my work on that uh you know i very much protect the frame and protect the designer i mean that's a standby's job it's actually very difficult you've got to you're the last you know the last bastion of what all of the art department's work has been up to yeah. to the frame you know that is being that's being captured and we were an anamorphic frame and you know there's a huge world we had a world of neon and we had a world of singing and dancing and you know i had a trained eye by then and there was a few incidents when i had to say i've got to get the designer on set i just don't agree that you know that neon should be off and you know there was like we don't have time we've you know no one will be looking at it and i said look i'm not doing my job 
if I don't go and at least tell him, because if we see it in rushes, you know, I won't have a job. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Yeah, that was your job. So, yeah, well, I have to protect the, the, you know, the department. And, you know, Brian recognised that in me and um, he, I got a call from him. He was being asked to do a, a show in Melbourne, a winner's show, very low budget. It's called Just Friends, Roller Skating. And Jane Valentine was the producer. And um, he phoned me up and he said, look, you know, we don't have much money, but if you could art direct and standby props, that would be terrific. And so, of course, you know, that was the beginning of five years of art directing. You know, I did nice. three films with Brian and, you know, did art directed a couple of other things because of the shows that were going on. Um, and again, I was art directing a, a film and the producer said to me, look, Nick, I've got a very small budget film. Would you art direct and production design or design? And then we'll take it from there. And um, so I did. And so that then led to me, it was a little 30 minute um, uh, silent film actually back in Broken Hill uh, called The Water Trolley. We won a, an award for it. And Noel Price, who was the producer, he was a great um, champion of um, young adult films, children's films. And we went on then, I worked with Noel for 10 years. We went around the world. We did Mission Top Secret, the two spellbinders we shot in Poland and China. And uh, we did a lot of filming in France. So, yeah, that's that's really the, sort of the journey. Yeah. So it's always, you, you do have to, I guess, have a champion. That's sort of the through line in a lot of a lot of these things that if you prove yourself obviously that you you're capable and they recognize it and that can really help in the industry so that's why it's so important that when you go to your first day i guess to, to be the best as you can be well you know i mean there are challenges these days crews are so large i think that there can people that can kind of sort of work on the periphery and no one really quite understands why they're there i mean in these days it was a very small tight guerrilla units mm -hmm working with film and, um, you know, you're only as good as your last job and, and you know, there was employment around. Uh, so, um, yeah, I guess I lucked out with that, but I think you do have to have a tenacity, you do have to have perseverance, you have to have courage. That's what working in the theatre taught me was courage. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you have to be reliable. And then, of course, you start to train your eye you know what works, you know what doesn't work. And then when I became a designer, I knew everything about art directing and I knew everything about standby props. So I knew, I knew how, you know, it works on set. I know how it works in so far as the money and, you know, the relationship that you have to have with the production office. Mm -hmm. And then I also knew that I had to bring, uh, you know, a, a unique eye or a, or a vision um, that was going to be achievable and also acceptable, you know, to whatever project um, I was asked to become involved with. Wow. Yeah. Uh, going back to Razorback, I just recently saw that they remastered it on Blu-ray. And, I mean, I saw it when I when I came to Australia because I wasn't born here. And, and um, yeah, I was wild. Like, I was like, geez, these Australians make crazy movies. But, yeah, it's an amazing visual feast, that film like that. I mean, I love, you know, Highlander, the follow-up film yeah. that he did. Um, but he's just 
that the eye like yeah the design and the visual styling that is crazy like you just go that's not what it looks like in real life well it, it didn't it was very yeah, it was, highly stylized exactly. and you know russell Ru russell and i became friends we did rock clips together in london and mm. uh we've just done another film together in like yeah. flynn so he uh he has got a a very powerful visual vocabulary mm. and uh you know when you know we were going to do bait together too but okay. um it got sort of pushed back a little bit and so uh he had commitments in america that he, he returned to and kimball rendell took over another director that's got a strong visual vocabulary he he and i've known each other for 30 years we go back to uh, rock clips with the mentals, mental as anything, oh, and, wow. and uh, a couple of other rock clips. And so it was fun. I mean, at least the sort of the dynamics of the show changed the director, but the, the whole sort of concept and, and the fun of it didn't. So and, that was great fun. Did you do rock clips where you could really play around with some stuff? Or? Look, I did two rock clips. Uh, I did a lot of TVCs. The TVCs kind of, you know, you had to have the biscuits dancing or you had to have, you know, the, the bottle of champagne looking absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, crispy. <laughs> and, I mean, you know, those sorts of things. But there's no story. There was no actor. There's no character to fall in love with. It was all about the product at the mm. end of the day and... No, financially it was quite fun. You could do 24-hour days and get paid for it, but it would take six, six to seven months to get your money because you yeah, know. that's that's still a common problem, I think. Oh well, <laughs> was there something that really opened your eyes to go, wow, this is like something? I guess that cemented that now this is definitely I want to be a production designer, an experience that you've had or a show that you worked on. Well, I've got to admit that it all came from, you know, being an art director on a film like uh, Hill's End, where we had to conjure up a village and blow it over with a hurricane. And, you know, the um, it was called Long Way From Home, Dada is Death, about the hanging of Barlow and Chambers, where we ended up having to, you know, relocate to three different countries. So it was the challenges. It was the sort of the... the, the you know, the wild experiences of being able to sort of tackle those and come through at the end of the day and, and you know, be acknowledged for that. And, uh, you know, when I started working with Noel, uh, he gave me free reign and Spellbinder uh, and Land of the Dragon Lord, still kind of seen as great young adult films of the, of the nice. time. Yeah, I saw, it. I saw it when I was, yeah, much younger, so... Yeah, and the, the thing about it too is that, you know, I was lucky. I have worked in 14 different countries and, you know, through 14 different languages. And, you know, that becomes a little bit of a sort of a, you know, thrill, a hit. I mean, it's just a, it's like, I guess, being in the military, you're just travelling around a lot. It's a, it's a wonderful... And, and you stay with the society for a while. You just don't breeze in and sort of look at the greatest hits and then breeze out again. You're there. You understand how the community works. And, you know, you have to remember we're the circus that comes to town and gives money away. We're not trying to pull things out of, out of the, the community. So, you know, there's a great engagement. You get invited to people's homes. You get taken to places where you're off the beaten track. You, you know, go to restaurants that uh, are only known by the locals. So those sorts of things are really, uh, you know, they made that whole part of the world is just so wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it. You get sucked in and it's, you know, like uh, on my la on last feature I worked on, you know, you, such a hard work, but you just, 
love it because it's it's exactly what you just said. It's a lot of those things. And you form a com- camaraderie with, you know, the people that you're working with and you sort of, you know, go off in little groups. People gravitate towards each other and and that's the fun of it, you know. I've had great times in Alice Springs and, you know, Port Douglas, three three films up there, did Travelling North and Sniper and mm. a remake of um, South Pacific. So you can return to places and... You've seen, watched they, how they've grown up, the communities themselves, but um, there's a familiarity and you feel at home. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's, let's uh, look into maybe something more recent you've worked on. With In Like Flynn, what was the approach? Because it was a lot of it on, on, you know, on location, as per se. There wasn't too much interior kind of thing. So how did you approach all those scenes? I mean, obviously the boat and the interior of the boat you would have worked a lot on and the, and the exterior of or it should be a sailing boat, really, but they call it a boat in the movie. <laughs> uh, well, we started out on one tack. Is that a nautical term I can use? Tack. Yeah. yeah. And we actually turned around and, and um, took another tack. There, there was a, a, a director and a cameraman initially involved, and during the course of the production, you know, there was differences of opinion, and they left and. Lo and behold, Russell Mulcahy came back in and we were thrilled to have the opportunity of working together again. And uh, DP, from an Australian DP who's um, uh, sort of based in Hollywood a lot, uh, Peter Holland, he came out. And uh, I had gone down a path some ways and um, thankfully Russell agreed with it all. Uh, the boat became a little bit of an issue because uh, we we did have one wonderful boat, but that wasn't ticketed. I'm not very good with boats, um, no, so we we've had to, we found another boat, and then we had to paint that boat, and then the, that boat had to have a wheelhouse built on it, and then of course we had to burn it to the waterline. But we had to return the boat because we only leased the boat, so it had to be returned in the in its original condition or better. Um, and uh, so that was a challenge. The interior was a full set because it had to sink, so we had water rigs. It had to catch fire, so we had fire rigs. It had to hold four cast and eight crew. So, you know, I sort of built it a little bit like the TARDIS and we put it on a big rocker that was pushed around by an earth digger. But the whole township um, uh, of uh, Townsville, I built at a location here called Mars Marina. And Mars Marina has been absolutely wonderful. It's sort of, uh, I've turned it into Borneo, turned it into uh, East Timor, I've turned it into Townsville, period Townsville. Mexico, I mean, it's vers- versatility is fabulous because of the sort of the nature of the property um, on the waterfront there. But I had to build um, where the boat leaves at King- off Sydney Harbour, where it arrives in various ports along the way, and then at Townsville. So I built all these facades that we repainted and turned around so I could actually use them like chess pieces and build up different streets and different aspects. And, um, you know, one time we'd introduce rain and everything would be painted black with signs on them. And then, you know, then I'd turn around and take them rust colored and put other signage on them and it became a front street. And then I built a huge big shed 
that had the main um, uh, boxing ring in it and we had the big fight sequence in there and then I cut the shed in half in t internally and built one half as an opium den and the other half as uh, a game gambling house uh, where the Razor Gang, you know, had a big fight out. So um, that's one of my skills is being able to turn sets around and, you know, totally unrecognisable. But, you know, the thing is, is that you consolidate. And when you can consolidate, you get more firepower rather than saying, oh, I've got, a, I've got 25 sets. How can I do it in four and make it look different? And then you've got a chance. And we yeah. did it that way and it worked wonderfully. And does that come down? I mean, obviously, you want to save as much as you can on a film. You don't want to waste money. But does that actually come down because of the lower budgets that you've had to work with that forced you to be more that way? Well, it gives you a sort of a, it gives you a clear uh, skill in being able to make, you know, 10 bucks look like 100. Mm. I mean, that's that's essentially where you come from when you're working on the sort of more restricted budgets. Happily, I've had a few experiences where, you know, we have had money to spend, uh, like James Cameron's Sanctum. There was a whole world. There's like four shots in a real cave and mm. two set extensions. Other than that, it's a complete real, uh, you know, flooding cave scenario that I built in four sound stages. And then, and then having to work with the uh, Pace Cameron cameras that had shot Avatar, these things were the size of a fridge. Mm, and to get them into tight quarters and make it look claustrophobic, that was a challenge as well. Of course, you're dealing with water and to waterproof everything. Bait then was another 3D yeah. film. These were two native capture films, yep. and um, which was fabulous. And, you know, again, I had to flood a complete supermarket so you were the go-to guy with flooding by the sound of it <laughs> yeah i was the 3d water guy yeah and um everyone said how on earth are you going to flood a supermarket oh, yeah. and i thought about it and i said actually it's quite simple because i had to build a swimming pool you can't build anything deeper than four feet of water otherwise you have to have buddy divers and mm, safety divers so everything had to be in four feet of water and the soundstage seven it was i built as far as i could um, a swimming pool um, and it became all about a roof because when people take refuge on top of shelving all you see above them is the ceiling mm. so I thought I've got to make the ceiling look pretty interesting because we're going to be looking at it a lot so I did a lot of you know cable trays and mm. levels and ducting and piping and things and the way that I discovered that I could flood the supermarket was by cutting everything in half and lowering the ceiling and so we built, we bought an IGA supermarket from Townsville that was being torn apart and all the shelving and refrigeration units and everything. And for the proper scene, we put it all in the, the dry, dry um, swimming pool. The, uh, the uh, ceiling was at full height. And then we took it all out, closed up the pool, flooded to four feet, brought in all the half cut down shelving and lowered the ceiling. And, of course, you know, the water was muddy enough and worked a treat. Very nice. That's a cool trick. And uh, going back to in like Flint, so what was the, some of the, the design elements like the palette and when you worked with, because as you mentioned, it, it obviously was split between two visions. Yes. So did that change or did you have an initial idea of how the, the look and colour would match, obviously, with the DP's lighting and things like that as well? well yes. I mean, I have to come um, to the job 
with quite a clear vision. Now, it can be a wrong vision. I don't mind that, as long as I'm told, you know, at the time. If it's too wrong, I don't have the job. That's that's the truth of it. But, you know, if they can see that there's an actual connection to where they're coming from, um, then uh, we work it out. Of course, there's going to be sort of, you know, some toing and froing, and that's my job to protect the director's vision. Mm. But generally, I've been able to come with a palette that's sort of really been suitable for what they want to achieve, because they'll come with some concept drawings or, Mm. you know, very early conversations. You can pick up pretty quickly and clearly how they see the Mm. film, and particularly when you're dealing with a period film, Mm. there is a palette already out there but I like to push it I've been one thing I'm really good at is color I've been really good with color and so I think that I've worked with the same scenic artist for a long long time I think I've changed the color once over 10 12 shows in one room and I said I was really sorry about that and they said what do you mean that's the undercoat and I said, that was that was generous of them but uh yeah, so, you know, I wanted to work with oranges. I wanted to work with, um, you know, greens. Mm. And, uh, you know, that worked really well, particularly oriental colours when we came into the opium den. And then in the boxing ring, it was all green in there as well because uh, it looks good with blood on it. Yes, it does. <laughs> and um, with uh, in the forest scenes, like I, well, that was shot up here, I assume, yes. somewhere. Yeah. Um, how, like, how do you deal with the, uh, like a, a situation? How much can you do, have an input in, in those kind of scenes where it's just external? Do, I mean, do you try to or do you just let it be okay that's nature? Or? Well, you can't fight against no. nature. I mean, you go with it. That's why you're shooting in the jungle. But yep. uh, we had, um, you know, you put atmospherics in there. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's the same place. So we shot Kokoda. Uh, when I met with the director, Alistair Grierson on Kokoda, he just walked the track and yeah. he said, oh, we're going up to New Guinea to shoot this. And having worked in New Guinea for a year, I, I know the challenges there. So I said, look, why don't you come to the Gold Coast, have a cup of coffee and I'll take you around to a few places. And within the end of the day, he said, we're not going back to New Guinea, it's all here. Oh, it's in, that and there's a insane. hotel yeah. and the bars. and the, Yeah, and, that would be know. insane to, to do it over there. Well, I did eight months on the Trobian Islands, fantastic film called In a Savage Land. Bill Bennett directed that, and um, that was really, uh, that was an experience of a lifetime. Yeah, exactly. Unbelievable. Yeah. Wonderful. Wow. Working with the, the, well, so you technically had two directors to work with on In Like Flynn, really. Well, how long was that process? Was it right at the early stage that it was changed over, or? Russell came in with, I think, three days pre. Ah, okay. So we'd been doing about four weeks. Yep. We'd locked in all the locations, nothing yep. changed insofar as the locations and nothing changed insofar as the build. I mean, I built, I, I had to build a brothel, I built them out of railway carriages. We yep. went way out somewhere and found uh, railway carriages and trucked them in and I put roofs between them and so all the individual sort of entrances from the carriages became the sort of the, the separate rooms for the brothel and, you know, I can play around with it like that and have yep. a bit of a stylized look at things and you know the, the original director very nice man he he loved all of that and so did russell so just too bit too late but you already had the same uh camera and camera team on it from the very start or was no, that they, changed to they changed as well peter oh, okay. came in as well with oh wow so three days. was there challenges there where you had to maybe adjust because that lighting man you know he's like lights differently or not really he was happy to just oh, go was, with i it. think it was i think it was 
Peter was the one who had to take the deep breath and jump in. I mean, ah, he go. wasn't going to ha- – he didn't – no one had the sort of – the train had left the station. Yeah, okay, chase them. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, no, but everyone worked really well together. Do, do you have a preference on location versus set or – or is it? It's more about the cha- you just enjoy the challenge of of either or. Well, I'm a builder. <laughs> Designers always love to create the world from the ground up, yeah. and uh, you know I'm known for building large or designing large sets, uh, and I do that for a reason because as soon as you start to trap a crew and the cast into a small space, it's very unproductive. And then if you have to, you know, pull out wild walls and, you know, have standby carpenters and things like that, can, you can lose an hour during the day. And when you put that sort of time um, to waste, it adds up and it's very costly. So I'll always be a bit bigger from the outset because you can narrow it down with the lenses. You don't have to see the whole world all the time. No, I mean, yeah. I think on Star Wars, they, that's how they, uh, I think the, the Death Star where they, where they built it, they literally had it from the point of view of the, the camera. So you, anything outside of that was gone. Yeah. That, that's how, you know, specific they were about what, what's going to be on camera and that's it. So that, that's great when you, when you can work on that. Yeah, so I, I will build a bigger world and then, you know, the lighting guys can have a sort of, in the production, know that mm. they've got to bring in a couple more rigs and a few extra lights, but you can get away with it. Yeah. Works in the long run. And, and how do you work with DPs as far as um, organising the, the, the look, I guess? Because obviously the DP will have the lighting look of it and framing and you'd have obviously the locations and the, the sets and palette. So do you sometimes have to compromise because of the budget, say? Or, or maybe sometimes it's, it's not gelling 100% and, you, and, the, and the lighting wants to do this but you've, you've done that kind of thing or...? Well, look, there is that, um, but generally the art department's a month ahead of the crew, has to be, mm. particularly when you're building. Yeah. So, you know, I'll always come back to lunch times with photographs and, you know, with the models of what we're about to build and mm. show the colour palette. And um, by that stage, we've sort of locked in yeah. essentially the road that we're, we're, we're driving along. And um, uh never really had a, a situation where it's all flared up and become pretty ugly on set. Mm. Everyone sort of knows what's happening by the time the crew turn up and the mm. cast have had a, you know time to block through. Because once you start going, you've, you, you've worked out all these sort of issues. I've worked with cameramen who on darker walls, which I'm very happy to do because they like to use more light. Mm. So it'll come up a couple of couple of stops or yep. you know other ones say just love what what you're doing um leave it to me and i'll light it whether you know but i also work a lot with practicals so a dp will have a you know a whole set that's lit for him yeah practicals oh yeah no, hundreds I, of them that's my favorite kind of thing yeah the less lights have to bring the happy i mean obviously i, I like to still add something a bit of extra but yeah, yeah having practicals is just you know like i watched like the those great sets like Alien and just like they built it in, they just had one spotty that would throw a bit of, you know, a bit of flare in or, you know, light beam and that's about it. But the rest was all the set yeah. and it looks mag- magnificent, you know, you just look at the Well, it's the stuff. ambience and the cast sort of work from that mm. as well. 
Yeah. I'm a very character-based um, designer, so I've got to get into the boots of each character and then build up their worlds. I don't, last thing I want is a character, to walk, an actor to walk in on set. So I, I wouldn't have that painting above the mantelpiece, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I pamper to the cast. I make sure that they all know what their you know, hero props are and... Same with costume, you know. Yeah. They've got to go through, make sure that they're living the living the character. Yeah, and I, I think that's probably the key job for you know all the roles really is to make sure that the, you know, unless the movie is about a table, but generally it's about people in it. Hmm. Uh, so you know, in that case, you've always got to think how does it enhance, you know, especially de depending on the scenes, and you know, and I'm assuming you would have had scenes where you would have just adjusted the palette depending on what's happening. Let's say in the third act. Very much so. Yeah. I mean, with the caves for Sanctum, I used about 27 different colours and I would go into the reds when it was getting angry and I'd mm. get into the blues when the, they were just beginning there, a bit cooler when they were just beginning and then I'd work in some oranges and greens when they had a moment of rest. And mm. so you can actually play with colours even on rock mm. um, oh, yeah. to sort of step you know, subliminally through the emotions and match it with what's happening in the story. You know, I do that a lot. Yeah, it's so important. Like, you know, I mean, it, yeah, and then obviously the DB comes in and it's the lens choices. Like, I think I was thinking of like 2001, which obviously is just crazy all set design. But you look at that and you look towards the end of the film and you start seeing how it actually, it, the set only changed just that minuscule amount. You know, shapes were beginning to be different sizes and, mm. The palette didn't really change because I think he wanted to have that mainstream, you know, that spaceship NASA look. But there was just little things changing and obviously spaces were becoming smaller. Yes. A lot of scenes started taking place in small. And I think that's so important to with, with set design to really change it up. Like it's, you know, like I know you go, oh, the whole film's set in this same house. And you're like, well, yeah, we could just shoot it in the same house and that's done. But you just don't realise how much more enhancement it is if you just adjust little things as the story unfolds. Yeah, I guess I've been lucky too because a lot of my recent work has been a journey. The Sanctum was a journey. Mm. Bait sort of became stationary, but there was a car park and the, you know, uh, the 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 nest, which became Guardians of the Tomb. That was a journey. It was a complete underground Chinese palace with traps and. People being chased with by funnel web spiders. Yeah, and, so, yeah. I only watched the trailer. And it looked like, <laughs> that looked like a bit of fun. Look, that's what—that's the great thing. You—you you know, you have fun making it. It shows on the screen. Yes, oh, that's true. Yeah, if people are frustrated. I mean, you know, when you work hard on a film set, it's like it's awesome that everyone's just working their butt off. But that's because they're having fun. It may not look like it when you someone from the outside walks in. Mm. Everyone's in crazy mode, but it's awesome. You know. <laughs> And it, it does show because if you, if you rock up to it, you watch any movies that just look, they just feel easy and not much, nothing's really engaging. Then I think that's what it feels like that maybe the film was too easy to shoot. Yeah, no, I maybe. can't say that the films that I've been involved with have been <laughs> particularly easy. Yeah, no, but same. I love that. That's the challenge. That's the courage. Yeah, wow. And then uh, jumping over to Reef Break, which is obviously a TV series shot up here. Yeah. How did, yeah, I guess that's all modern and all, and a lot of, there is a lot of location by the look Thousands. of it. Thousands. Yeah, so <laughs> a lot of, is it more exterior or, or is it a bit of a interior drama when, the, you know, when Well, the, there's a, look, uh, it sort of 
boiled down to probably 60 40 60% locations we had to do something everywhere you know because they were moving around so much there would be a door that needed moving it was just sort of practical stuff but when the design element came to it um you know i was given an island to build from the ground up yeah. and um that was thrilling it was a mid, you know so sort of a mythical island and uh, so we had pirate camps and, you know, we had high-end planes, high-end boats, high-end cars. It sort of came to a bit of a crunch because, you know, we were fighting against the Gold Coast yeah. instead of saying we are the Gold Coast. So all the signage, why we were driving right-hand drive cars yeah, yeah. and it was an American, you know, territory. We were using American money. Everyone was speaking with American accents. It, it clashed. And so there was a little bit of, um, and all the signage and the approvals. It was a, it was a, it was a film full of chore, but it was a great for me. I was, it, there was a lot of churn on that production. I've never known so much churn. It was a little unfortunate. There was a lot of people that um, sort of left and were replaced and moved on. But I was first in and last out, last man standing. So nice. for me, again, you know, I had a great team. Um, you know, I had some, you know, wonderful times and it was an opportunity to work with Poppy Montgomery. I mean, she was the girl who, whose idea it was, who, who arranged, you know, Disney to come together with a French outfit and um, she was the star of the show. I mean, you know, that's a sensa sensational achievement. Ooh. Um, so I had fun. She had fun. Wow. And then do you think there is, I, I don't know what this season ends. So is it just one series or you think they might do more? Seasons? I've heard nothing. I mean, oh, okay, yeah. I know that things were put in storage and then I heard that maybe the storage um, was going to be given up. So, um, but yeah, you know, I've, um, I've had nothing to do with that since I left in August. Wow. And in that process, like, I th I'm, you know, talking to DP specifically, um, it, it seems that the pre-production is just at the start and then that's it, off you go and you just start shooting every episode. Because it, it was 10 episodes? 13. 13. So, do you, like, especially from your uh, point of view, I mean, you always have to be that much more ahead because you want to be like, that episode's shot, that's nice, but the next episode's got to be ready to go. Well, we were being asked for budgets and it was like pulling teeth to get the scripts because oh. they weren't prepared and, you know, directors hadn't been you know, settled upon. And so it was in that regard, it was a sort of a mad scramble. But um, like I said, I had a terrific team and, you know, we just had the patience and we had the capacity to, to see it through. We worked with three DPs on that and, you know, wow. there was seven directors and we had, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a big show. I enjoyed it. Yeah. yeah. And what is it like working with seven different directors? Because they'll, they'll all have their manner of how they communicate. Like for you to just constantly, I guess, liaise between the style and, and, and switching your, your, the way you're communicating, like is that, is that something you've got to really, you know, be aware of when you're doing that? Well, you do. I mean, because of, it's all set in this one place yeah. and you're dealing essentially with the same characters, everything was thrashed out in pre-production and for the pilot or the first episode, mm. which was an hour and a half long or something. Um, then 
as every other director came in, there was different stories, but it all took place in the same world. So, you know, I had to just show them the world. That's the bar. We built facades of bars. I built all the interiors of the bars in the studio, the interior of her house. We had an exterior down in Belongel in New South Wales. And so as soon as the new director came on board, it was in the van, you know, there's that exterior, there's Jake's boat. This is what we use for this. This is, you know, the, this is back here in the soundstage. And then they, it was their job to put it all together and work with the cast. Well, that's good. It's always yeah. nice to hear that, you know, they, they all work together in that, in that sense, even though they might have not even met each other, like the one director to the other. Mm. Uh, were they all local directors or were they US? We had two uh, American directors, first episode and the last episode, and the rest were Australian. Came from Sydney and Melbourne. I don't think we had a local director. No, we did, yes. Okay. We, we had one. Yeah, because I knew Andrew Connor shot some of it. So. Yes, he did. He was second unit. So, yeah, he, yeah, he, um, he's, uh, he was telling me a little bit about it. <laughs> <laughs> Within, like, Flint, from your respects, uh, do you feel that you've, you, you got to do what you got to do or you wish you could have done a little bit more with it or how do you feel about it? Oh, look, I've, look, it was a great achievement. We had a little bit of a churn to begin with with a change of DP and director. And then, you know, as we went through the scripts, um, sort of we lost a port because it was too expensive mm -hmm. to sort of have a third port. We lost um, a, I think, a pirate ship blew up. Oh, wow. And we lost that. Was the so port we, the Brisbane port? Because the way they take the yes, photo. So, yeah, because when Brisbane. I was watching, I'm like, there's got to be something more there. Yeah. They must have wanted to. They just couldn't. Yes. So, uh, so um, we had New Guinea in hand because that's, we just go up to Mount Tambourine where we've, I've shot eight films up there in the jungle. Mm. And so that works. And Mars Marina became our sort of base. Like, because, again, when you consolidate, if you can keep the crew in a um you know in a in a same space for three weeks mm. i mean you I just know. save thousands yeah and it tens gives, of thousands oh yeah and it gives opportunity to you know maybe get shots that you might have not got if if you would have done all the location moves and things like yeah. that so there's that too as well that i mean that was the thing with this reef break the crew were doing three moves a day i mean it was such mm. a thief of time but that's just how yeah. the story story plots and the, and, the, and the schedules sort of panned out. And we were everywhere from northern New South Wales to Brisbane. <laughs> when I did uh, Ben Hall, that was, that was just, it would destroy you when you've got those location moves and it's all rural, there's no roads, you know, you're trying to move, make these moves and end up costing you two hours. And, you know, when we're shooting in, uh, it was early winter, you know, the light's starting to get less, it's like, <laughs> yeah, normal yeah yeah <laughs> normal. exactly and um working today are, are you still fairly like you you, you hope that you're going to keep doing production design for oh, many absolutely. years i yep. think Until my apprenticeship's just finished my career's about to start excellent yeah i think these days too there's a there's a degree of making your own opportunities i mean here on the gold coast it's wonderful we have i think the best facilities in australia uh they're purpose-built um, but when one big film comes in and, um, you know, they bring in their key key personnel, their HODs, uh, pretty well sort of, you know, the opportunities are, are less. Mm. 
there is no second unit production designer. <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> there, no, there, are, no, there are second unit camera departments and yeah, electrics yeah. departments. And, they could be, but yeah. and art, art directors. But so no, it's you know it's fabulous gainful employment, and you know the the larger shows upskill everybody. Yes. So I think that that's a really great um, contribution. Uh, I like to, um, uh, you know, help people along too. I'll get contacted about, you know, somebody may lecture. I lectured at the architecture division down at Bond University. I was because the, the, the man in charge there, Adrian, thought that, you know, there was a correlation between design and film and, and, and architecture in the real world. Mm. And so he asked me to go down there. And one of the students said, you've opened my eyes. I'd really like to, you know, join the art, join a, join an art department. And I said, well, you know, you, you build stuff that lasts forever. Mm. I build stuff that either gets burnt down, blown up, or hurled into a bin, yeah. are you sure? And she was very uh, adamant. And so put her in touch with a few people. And now she's really powering. She's loving it and a great contributor to... Um, to the industry here. Wow, yeah, it's so amazing, isn't it? That's cool. And today's opportunities and uh, with the technology, you know, you've got green screen galore, like as far as production designing, you know, what happens there for you? Because do you, I mean, in a digital realm, you can production design, obviously, but do you even get that opportunity or? Well, do you know, um, to be honest, I've not done a large green screen production that's uh, just green screen. I mean, obviously, these Lord of the Rings and avatars and motion capture. Yeah. Uh, I've done my, done my fair share of green screen, but it's either for an explosion enhancement or... But it's never for... I've done one or two set extensions. Yeah. Uh, we, of course, obviously had to invent all the beasties for um, Guardians of the Tomb or the spiders, so... You work in tandem, but that, you know, you're just building funnel webs. So yeah. that wasn't the situation. When it comes to actually conjuring up a complete world, um, you know, there are so many concept artists that have already gone down the road because it's on those concepts that the guys have got the money to make the film in the first place. Mm. And so there's an expectation that those concept drawings will be followed through with the actual production. And so the designer, you know, will be given those concept drawings and um, work with the post-production supervisors in the same manner. That's an assumption of mine, um, but I've not done a big green yeah. screen production yet. Yeah. I look forward to the day yeah, when I'm asked. Me too. I've, I've shot green screen, but not to that level where it's like rock up to set and green everywhere. <laughs> I've not had that yet, luckily. I, I mean, I, I like physical... You know, yeah. I'm, I'm, you could call it old school in that way, I guess, that I enjoy the idea of being on, you know, the physicality. And I think it's for actors as well. Like, I'm, it's pretty obvious. You watch those CG movies and the actors, some are, get it right, but most of the time you can kind of tell there's a disconnect. They're just, they're just not in that physical realm, so they don't, they kind of have to imagine in their mind. But what they imagine in their mind, and with today's technology, they're starting to, be able to show you on set, oh, show you on set. but, but yeah. still not the same as having that physicality of going, okay, that's a mm. table, that's a soft cushion chair versus it's just a, a mm. green box, you know? Um, so I think that's pretty amazing when, you know, actors do pull off and, you know, in Lord of the Rings, I mean, in The Hobbit, you know, they still legends like Ian McKellen, like, you know, he 
he pulled it off, no worries. But still, it's uh, I think it it makes the life <laughs> gives it more life. I don't know. It's 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 like you said, it's that subliminal idea that when you watch a movie, there's just that slight disconnect when you. I, I think there might be a return to that sort of world too. I mm. mean, there is a saturation point for these kind of carnage films. So, mm. you know, obviously there's a new audience for them. There's new 14-year-olds coming in every year and they've got yeah. sort of want to see the sequel. And I think that's fantastic. I mean, it is a business. Mm, I mean, right, yeah. you know, you, there isn't, it's, it's a business. Yeah. I've unhappily worked on some films where it's been, you know, their absolute life ambition and um, four people turned up at the cinema to see yes, it and yes. you know it's heartbreaking oh, it but it is a business and so you have to be sort of practical about that oh yeah and, and you know adapting is important so you know for me I've always adapted to technology but it's uh it's just that yeah I guess it's it's a hard one because we're you know we're human beings we like to touch things you know and it and tactile tactile yeah, yeah so you know, in a way that that comes off screen, and that's that's the hopefully you know it is coming back, and a lot of a lot of movies now are starting to go. Oh no, we use practical this like, like the the new Star Wars TV series Mandalorian. You know, the the Yoda's mostly a puppet, and then you can tell you watch it, and you just feel you're there, and it's mm. it feels like the story that 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 journey that that character is going through. You just feel it, and uh, so I think that's good that it's actually starting to come back, and I think costs difference. I think that's the other thing. Uh, it may be that actually the cost difference isn't anything. Anything. Well, if you look at the credits, they go on for 15 minutes now with all mm. the animators and, and post-production guys. And look, you know, it does its gainful employment. Mm. But then when you look at the big films, you know, recently The Joker or, um, you know, The Gentleman, mm. you know, I mean, they're all just physical, physical stories that have got great dynamics and obviously a connection there's an audience out there for them yeah so it's what it's what we give the audience too yeah we choose to give the audience all shoot 'em ups and on green screen and they'll go see that and and you know the, the like you said the youngins come up and that's what they see so to them that's like that's the norm yes. so it's, it is up to us filmmakers to decide to tell stories a certain way that the you know the audience consumes it and i mean with netflix and that there's tons of shows that obviously they have to pump out really quick, so they have to shoot it on location. They don't have time to go and do people post-production. So mm. people are coming up with really clever shows, you know. And uh, well, you've got the Danish and all those those crime yeah films crime shows, but that area South Koreans too. They're yeah. revenge films. Yes, yes, they're all great. So it's good to see, and I think that, that that's the beauty of the right now with the we're all connected. And we can now have access to those things that you couldn't previously. So, well, look at look at TikTok. Yeah, everyone's now making fifteen-second movies. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of vanity stuff in there, but <laughs> there's some clever. There's some yeah. clever little moments. Yes. And, you know, to do that in fifteen seconds, it's almost like a, a TVC. But people are learning their skills, so you can make. See, in my day, you could make a mistake and you learn from your mistakes. If I made a mistake today, it would be the last mistake that I made. <laughs> But with TikTok, people are making their mistakes. They're learning, yeah, and you yeah. know there'll be a great new sort of surge of filmmakers. I think just because they've been making their mistakes on a platform like TikTok. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's awesome proving ground. If if you get into mm. the commercial realm and mm. you show that, and you know, I think that funny enough, TikTok, you know, the the, oh, yes. the the guy used to do the the these magic tricks where it would wipe, and oh, yes. it, or you grab something and then something comes out of that box and stuff and now he's doing ads for 
called TikTok. Yeah. It's funny that, and it's TikTok. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so that's that's one example where that's happened, and he's obviously now become a you know staple for him to work in the industry. So is awesome. that Zach King? Is it? He does some clever stuff on TikTok. Yeah. So we wanted to talk about also that you're part of the uh, China Go Abroad ambassador, yes. and from a filmmaker point of view, because I, I did a little bit of research and obviously it's about connecting with the Chinese market and, and, and um, but from all different industries. So are you mainly focused on film as far as- Oh, invest? absolutely. Yeah. No, I've done um, two co-productions. We have uh, three in development. Um, we plan to do one of them this year. We've got all of our um, paperwork signed. So that's exciting. Yeah. It's slow. And if it was easy, everyone would be doing it, that old chestnut. Yes. But um, it's true, you know, and I've been going to China since 1989. So I've seen, uh, 1987, so I've actually seen the world of change up there. And it is about the relationship. And I know a lot of people, I was in Beijing five weeks ago, and I'll be back in Beijing in three weeks. So it's continually going there. It's continually, you know, furthering the relationships and... Um, widening the contacts and you know when they see that you're traveling there um opportunity presents itself and so there's been a couple of other things that have come my way that um, people are interested in in um, exploring down here in australia um that isn't related to the film industry so you know you sort of take things as they come i'm a filmmaker and a and a storyteller and a designer and um you know that's my joy i've still got a couple of decades left, I guess. Excellent. And, um, you know, if um, I can bring two nations together, such as China and Australia, we have a treaty, it's very underutilized. Well, okay. I'll do everything I can in my, in, in, with my abilities to do that because uh, we live in the same part of the world. I think we have a very strong history, 200 years. And, mm. you know, I think it's a shame to allow some people's prejudices to get in the way. I mm. think that that um, should be just certainly put into a box and put aside and our two nations should really engage and doing it culturally is something that's really um, powerful. Mm. And with with doing a co-production like that, they, they seem to, from what I've seen, a few co-productions, pretty large budgets. Is that an opportunity there for Australians to start producing higher budget projects with China? Oh, absolutely. I think they've been here. They did one at, called At Last, and oh, I yep. think they did The Legend of the Sun and the Moon, and mm. the big one down in Melbourne called The Whistleblower. They've done another couple. I mean, Nest or Guardians of the Tomb was a co-production. Bait was sold there. Sanctum made over $100 million in China. Mm. Made $100 million in the rest of the world. I mean, People don't realise that, you know, Alistair's film made $200 million. Mm. Oh, um, yeah, people forget. And like even our film we try to get in there, but successful. because our story was about, I guess, criminals, it probably... Like, mm. that, that's one thing, I guess, do you have to really engage with stories that obviously don't touch those nerves, I guess you'd say, from a bureaucratic point of view? With, oh, with no, Chinese. I mean, you have to be sensitive, and yeah. I mean, that's only being respectful as well. I mean, yeah. um, you know, there's a... There's a uh, pursuit of excellence that is certainly apparent on both sides to engage. 
more Chinese are traveling than they ever have before and they're traveling independently and they're coming to places like Australia and hiring a car and driving on mm. the wrong side of the road and, and going to buy uh, theater tickets. And, yeah. you know, it's, um, it's a period of growth and, um, you know, their box offices are uh, increasing 5%. Every year, they now have something like 80,000 screens. Wow. So, and they, their plan is to have 120,000. They're going into the third and fourth tiers wow. cities. So, it's a really rapidly growing um, environment. And I think not to take advantage of that, or at least have a crack at it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a very hopeful sound as well, because, you know, there's a lot of doom and gloom about cinema. And, you know, and obviously there's filmmakers very pro filmmakers that are pushing to to still shoot on film and you know cinema and all that but you know that's actually a really positive thing to hear that you've got a country there that's pushing the cinema market well they are and um there's uh, there's a real um skill set that's coming up and the engagement with people like ourselves um they get more experience they get more confident with the international engagement they you know would like to see chinese cinema expand globally a lot of their films are very successful domestically they can make three mm. five six hundred million dollars in a month mm. um but overseas they struggle to make two or three million dollars in an american market um, yeah. So they understand that, you know, there will have to be some kind of more of a, of a compromise at the moment, though, that they can recoup so much domestically. It's, um, that's, yeah, you know, amazing. Whether, whether they continue to want to, you know, sit back and just say the domestic market does us. So we just, you know, we're working through our projects. We skewer it to a Chinese market because it makes business sense. Yeah. It's my job to return to an investor. Yeah. And hopefully, like, you know, people like you that engage with with that kind of connection, their co-productions, because I think that's what Australia at the moment is lacking. Like, I know we want to tell Australian stories, which is really important. But I think, as you said earlier about business, that we need to make you know, commercially viable films as well. And I mean, this is probably one avenue for us to maybe try and engage with more. Yeah. I mean, Australia had a voice. It was very well recognised mm. when we did those films like, um, uh, well, the Sunday Too Far Away. And there was, uh, you know, that, that kind of period when we had those mm. films. Uh, and the uh, Peter Weir's films, they were all very well regarded internationally and then we sort of lost that voice a little mm. bit we quietened down yeah. don't know why it's kind of been like that i think people got a bit hesitant to to invest i mean screen australia does a wonderful job it has to juggle so many different kind of elements um, yeah. and the local um, screen communities you know, queensland and new south Wales, victoria mm. western australia south australia i mean they've just Great for the for the local um, markets. They're very supportive. Gold Coast Council is extraordinarily mm. supportive. Mm. So everyone's you know, and a great old family friend of mine has just opened three new sound stages here on the Gold Coast Pyramid. Yeah. So you know there is a sort of a groundswell now, and it's just being able to break out, break through with those one or two voices that yeah. um, you know get heard around the world. Yeah, that's it. And you're probably right with maybe softening off and we're not, you know, it's a bit of cliche, but pushing the envelope in a way in storytelling. Mm, we like, got into a lot of low-budget horror stuff. You know? Yeah. 
that sort of, you know, one or two worked and then a hundred didn't. Yeah. And they yeah. were all very repetitive and slashes and things like yeah. that. So right. I think, you know, one or two of those and people got a bit gun shy and put their checkbooks away. Yes, yeah. Uh, it's like, what was I watching recently about, um, back in the day, about Star Wars Empire Strikes Back, they were talking about the fact that, um, you know, you, you, you can't follow the trend because once you follow the trend, people get bored so you know what I mean like you always kind of have to be ahead and for them at the time they were still the only one really of that kind of movie you know Star Wars had just come out and then Empire Strikes Back they're making it and they 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 you know you could tell that they don't think they'll be able to reach what what Star Wars did but in the end it did <laughs> actually became a lot more profitable film oh, fabulous! And what a franchise yeah so staying ahead of the game is, is part of it you know and that's what I guess mean by pushing the envelope is that you know even if you do a horror well then you know like Baba do, do something that's just people wouldn't have expected yes you know it's fine to do genre films and 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 go with that but you've got to then find your own voice not just go oh, I love Halloween, so I'm just going yeah, to do an Aussie the, Halloween. <laughs> the Saw people, you yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. James Wan and that. They, oh, yeah. they were, you know, absolute exa example. Yeah. So there's always, a, there's always a way. You've just got to find that unique voice. Mm. And that was pretty low budget. Like, I know they were trying to get it off the ground in Australia, and I had, they had one million attached to it. I think they did it in two million in the US anyway. So yeah. two million US, so maybe it was three million Aussie, but that's still pretty amazing. Fabulous. <laughs> no, great so, yeah. success. Uh, for, for you, as far as, is there a production that you've really wanted to be involved in? Uh, or, I guess, a story that you wanted to tell in, in production design? Is there something that attracts you to that? Oh, uh, not that I could tell you off the top of my head. I mean, you know, I, I get calls about different shows and I get very excited about the prospect of what I could to that particular show I mean there's not a book out there that I think you know I, I should grab the rights to and have it produced and I design it I'm not um, there's not a franchise I don't think that um, I'm really chasing after now I like the unique stories just bring it maybe on. mine <laughs> your own story hey yeah sounds like you've had pretty colorful uh, history so that, you know that's Nothing right. It's, they, they say, write what you know. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, you'll tell that story really well. So, you know, that's important to think about as well. And uh, do you have any uh, upcoming productions? Well, just the ones that we're sort of um, pushing and um, in China, which is sort of some of the productions. Yeah. So, but nothing, uh, nothing just at the moment. I just finished doing uh, Reef Break and yeah. I'm gun for hire. I'm nice. free. Yeah. Uh, do you have a, uh, I guess, a favorite film, whether it's because of the production design or just the film that you love? Look, I, you get asked that a lot, obviously. Yeah. And really, for me, uh, I keep coming back to Apocalypse Now. I mean, oh, yeah. it's just a film full of meat. And I think. You know, the way that Coppola kept going back to it too and playing around and, you know, adding and doing a redux and things like that. I mean, it's just sort of just really encompassed everything. I mean, I've got a number of smaller films that I always loved during my formative years, you know, Easy Rider or yeah. Clockwork Orange or, you know, different MASH. Or, you know, they were just sort of films that came out. But the one that really 
sticks with me is Apocalypse Now. You know, yeah. it's the music, it sort of captured the zeitgeist of, of what was sort of the Vietnam War was all about. Yeah, definitely. And, and, uh, and then out of that came Heart of Darkness uh, documentary, yes. which is a beautiful piece of documentary itself. <laughs> Yeah, the there have been some modern films that I've really enjoyed, but mm. they've never really lingered. Mm. And I mean, Apocalypse Now must be 75 yeah. or something, so it sort of stood the test of time. You, you can go back and watch The Night, The Hunter and mm. Citizen Kane and those yeah. sorts of wonderful films, but, um, you know, th th they weren't part of my childhood. They weren't part of, you know, going to the movies and seeing it in 70mm yeah. and listening to all of those choppers around, you know, hovering around you with the sound system. Oh, yeah, no, it's fantastic. I, I mean, I, I actually saw it pretty young because my dad loves his war movies, so whenever he watched something on TV, oh. I'd be watching. <laughs> I've done three World War II movies and two of them are musicals. <laughs> oh, wow. So it's like a lighter side of war, maybe. <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome. Oh, well, on that note, uh, thank you so much for uh, having Absolute a chat. It's a pleasure, Peter. Great, yeah. And uh, yeah, all the best it. in the future. And I uh, look forward to seeing uh, more of those co-Chinese productions. Thank you very much. Yeah, me too. That was great to hear about Nick's work and uh, his experiences in the industry. And next week we have Damien Beebe, who also has a huge amount of experience as a camera operator and also a cinematographer on such films as Edge of Tomorrow, uh, Mary Poppins Returns. So it would be great to hear his uh, insights into working on the big films and on small films as well. So look out for it next week. Mm -hmm.